0: Hello, and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies, and fresh ideas in global business. In today's program, we meet the man behind a visionary independent firm that's reimagining investment and wealth management for ultra high net worth individuals, family offices, and corporations.
1: We want all the touch points for our clients to feel like they've been well considered. The people, human element. our business is key. We view that has been forgotten over the last 15, 20 years. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards.
0: You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Today, we're talking to Harry Hundle, founder of the eponymous business, Making a Name for Itself and Quite the Big Impact, with its client-centric approach and commitment to maximising value over the long term. It's a pleasure to welcome Harry to Midori House. Thank you very much. I think at Monaco, we like to feel like if you're going to talk to people about how to design a good office or how to do things properly, you need to be demonstrative in your behaviour. Tell me a bit about your experiences. Then, have you found ever that there's been a bit of a disconnect between the sort of the rhetoric and the words that people have been using in terms of how they're running their businesses, and some of those details that perhaps some people might think are trifling details, yeah, but that are actually really substantive. How much of that is part of the sort of the origin story of of what of what Hundle is and is seeking to do?
1: We're in a sector, financial services, which typically historically has thought about sort of design as a as an afterthought. And I think, you know, our whole business is built around our families and having a very close relationship. So we tend to see them more often, they tend to come in more often. And so, you know, from our perspective as we thought about sort of the rebrand, it was important that, you know, this was our chance just to to get all of that right because what we want, you know, we want all the touch points for our clients to feel like they've been well considered. It's a market by its nature that has people who have wealth. They tend to be interested in design. They like nice things. And our thought was very much that financial services don't often think about that. So we were like, look, we need to think about that from day one because actually, genuinely, I'm interested in it. I want to be in a nice office. I want to have meetings in a nice space where clients feel comfortable. It feels a little bit like home. And that's really what we've tried to do. And I think clients appreciate that. So it's it's a sense of bringing a quality touch to all the touch points, whether it's their reporting or, you know, their statement or the letter welcoming them, welcoming them to the firm or our events or our coffee cups and, and our tea. Like that's all important to us.
0: Let's take it a couple of steps back then. So. Give us the kind of the Hundle 101, because you have a, a highly successful, long, storied career, of course, working all around the, the world. But you've kind of, it seems you've arrived at some fundamentals that you felt you could bring to the table, bring to this space, which is a competitive space, um, difficult to do well, highly competitive. Give us a little bit about how your journeys led you to that, that point. Were you one of those entrepreneurial folk, Harry, where in the end, you realised there weren't any options. You had to do this thing.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, Tom, we've spoken about this briefly before. I think, you know, the story is very entrepreneurial, but not for the sake of it. I think it was by, you know, the nature of sort of, I guess, consequence of 20 years working sort of in the banks and seeing where the industry is moving. And really responding to one or two clients who were very important to us and said, look, this is what we need. You know, we need advisors who sit on our side. We need advisors to be independent. We need advisors who you know, are going to be around for the next 20 years and not you know, move around all the time. The people, human element to our business is key. And I think that sometimes gets forgotten or certainly we view that has been forgotten over the last 15, 20 years as financial firms and big banks have grown and then retreated this kind of cyclicality to sort of their business model. So for us, it was it was very much responding to a client or two. And then for me, always knowing sort of very deep in my heart that at the end, I had to have my own business and be able to be my own master and be able to be nimble and respond to our client needs. And that's what we've done. So we've created a business today, which having sort of started it with this very select group of families, we've just grown it over time. And we really do sort of very much live by this philosophy of building it brick by brick. Um, And, you know, I've been having conversations with Ross this morning just around that. But actually, when you step back and you think about the journey over the last 10 years, you know, we started with no capital. We started only with clients. We built our own capital. We never borrowed. We we never took family money, you know, and we put ourselves out there to create it. And now, you know, all these years later, we're, I think, in a very interesting spot. And we also sort of have an observation around other entrepreneurial businesses in financial start you know in financial services we see it in the tech space we you know you've seen huge capital allocated there and it's a very different model what they do is they raise a lot of money on sometimes quite absurd valuations and and then there's there's a few winners but there's a lot of losers we cannot afford that in our business our business is about being the stable partner and so therefore our entrepreneurial journey is, is quite unique because none of us, I would say myself, I don't come from sort of moneyed background, you know, very humble, sort of a very humble, hardworking background. But, and therefore, I think we've, we've done it the right way. And I think today that gives us optionality.
0: Well, talk to me a bit about the power and the potential of being independent, a bit of an outlier, and I know it runs through a lot of the sort of Hundle DNA. Is this idea of being truly client-centric, sitting with your clients, not sort of opposite them? Is the I think the sort of elegant way that you guys talk about it. Maybe from the other side, just tell us what not having that independence, what being bound into offering clients products that are your own products. What, what are the problems with that in, in layman's terms, Harry, which means that some of these big established players in the high net worth, not high net worth sector just can't really offer the family
1: uh, offices what they, what they need. Tell us some of the, the pitfalls as well, first of all. Yeah. So I think, look, what are the benefits? Again, we don't want to downplay the role of large banks and financial institutions. We work with those firms and they tend to be partners of ours. From a custodial perspective, they provide comfort. You know, They have that brand value and that history and that scale that some individuals and families appreciate. So we work with that. But I think the interesting element of private banking advisory relationship is the advice. And I think a lot of the banks have struggled with that over time. Some of it's regulatory driven, some of it's legacy driven, but creating a genuine advisory process which is shaped around the client is, is sometimes difficult in those firms. And, and the reason why that also is, is it's this agency point. A lot of advisors in banks You know, they're driven by targets, quarterly, annual, on net new assets and revenue. And, you know, they're being judged on that, you know, from a business perspective. Because, again, when the businesses get over size and scale, they take on costs and profitability really does matter on a a quarterly and annual basis. And so it all becomes a bit of a numbers game. Whereas our view is, well, yes, of course, that's important to my earlier point. But I think at the end, our agency is with the clients and with the the families, because we know at the end, if you do right by them, then you're going to be fine on the financial side. And so that's where we flip it. And I think it's very difficult, despite sort of, you know, the marketing and the advertising some of these big banks throw at it. If you really sit down sort of their bankers, sometimes their culture is, well, what are we going to grow in the next 12 months? not how we're going to look after our existing clients. And actually, the great advisors, they're the ones that are always like, look, we need to look after our existing. Growth will look after itself if you look after existing. And that's our philosophy. And I think the fact that we're independent and we're not pushing our own product, because that's where the agency point comes into. If you have a firm which is pushing its own product, by consequence, it's very unlikely that firm can sort of own the alpha in all the product they provide. And it's it's a bit of a technical term in financial services. But it's like saying, OK, I'm, I'm the best furniture maker and all the furniture you're going to, you know, you're, you're going to buy for your wonderful home has to come from me. Well, we know that's not the truth. We know that a beautiful home has a combination of different design, different artists, different furniture makers. You know, and and that's the way we think. So we think, look, let us compose and get the right furniture. Let's get the right products because guess what? There's amazing solutions out there and we cannot be the agency that owns all of those. And I think a lot of the big banks, you know, confuse that because they recognize the commercial benefit of being that provider of the beautiful sofa. They want to be that. And we're like, well, actually, no, we're going to take less. But we're going to look after the whole home, right? That's let me bring that into kind of the step into into your world a bit, maybe.
0: How lovely and how apt is that your your metaphor you use is the the, crea- the creation of a home, Harry? I think that speaks volumes. Um, and tell me a bit though about then metrics and setting ambitions and targets, because let nobody mistake this idea about a more organic growth and a more holistic, and more human approach. It's not it's not accepting mediocrity, far from it. So how do you set your metrics? And it must be interesting as your team grows, maybe you bring in new recruits yeah. and they say, well, hang on, what's this metric? Yeah. Just looking after people. How do we calibrate that? What, what, what kind of conversations go into that side of things?
1: Yeah. So I think, again, you know, first of all, the way we've hired people to this point and will continue to be the way is first ensuring that, you know, they have a very high level of technical proficiency. Because again, I think sometimes, you know, firms have been obsessed with, just bankers just the relationship whereas our view is look let's let's hire highly technical people who can genuinely add value in investment management direct investments tax and how that all comes together let's do that right and then if they're really good and this is what we assess through the interview process and speaking to peers and having the right headhunters who know our values as a firm if they have that technical skill and they have some experience, because again, we tend to hire people who have sort of five to 10 years of experience, have been in the industry, have understood and have that training, that institutional training, they will tend to have influence over capital. And, And it comes from the source of actually being an advisor, not necessarily having a target, you know, like a traditional banker. And that's where I think we're coming to it from a different angle. If we can hire those people, then that creates credibility in the market. So when we speak to other accountants and lawyers and and people who have influence, they will understand that actually we have a highly technical, proficient team. And that then brings in business. I think we also, so we do have targets. So let's be clear, you know, as we grow now, I think it's important that people know the direction we're going. What I like to do is set a team target, not set an individual target. So, you know, we have a clear team target now for the rest of the year, but it's something that everyone needs to buy into. And I think that sometimes, you know, it takes a bit of the pressure off. So we, we don't want to create siloed thinking. We want our 14 people working together to get there. And I think that's the way we do it. And to this point, it's it's working well. I think we also acknowledge that, you know, we... <laughs> It's the, it's the time that you provide an individual a team to reach their targets. We realize in this business, you know, it takes, it takes time. The sales cycle is very long because guess what? It's highly competitive and it's about building trust. So we know that's not a one-year cycle. We know that's a three- to five-year cycle. So all our key metrics are a little longer term, right? Let's not worry about really where we are at the year end because things just move around. Yes, we have a very strict sales approach, but really let's judge it over a longer period. And I think that's the other thing sort of that marks us out. And, you know, that more strategic thinking around how we grow the business is important.
0: I'm always interested in how a lot of these principles and ideals actually sort of uh, manifest themselves on the on the day to day. And I think on this program, often we're intrigued by the nuts and bolts of those processes. Give me a, a typical day for Harry, then. It, let's say it's a good day. And at the end, you say, I don't, know, I don't know, if you're having a glass of wine, a nice meal, or whatever. And you reflect and you think, yeah. That's a good day. This was a good one. What, what might that kind of day give us a couple of the, the, the touch points which would deliver a good day?
1: Yeah, so first of all, as sort of kind of Ross knows, um, I like to start early. So uh, a good day begins sort of, you know, before seven o'clock in the office. Um, I like to cycle in. It gives me that time to think about things as, as I come into the office. Um, I, I very much believe in the ph- philosophy sort of, Early risers win. Um, so having having that time at the beginning and at the end of the day, or at points through the day, where you can step away and and think, I think is very important. So so a good day is starting early and then having periods during that day where you can both do productive work, but you can also, you know, have some thought and time to think more strategically. Um, a great day always involves a client. So. The best day is the day when you win a new client and you get them over the line. That feeling is like, you know, like a centre forward scoring a goal, right? Or an architect winning a great new mandate. Um, and for for me, that's huge satisfaction. Why? Because that, that point shows, or that decision shows that a client's fully brought in. And depending on how long that's taken, it's like, they're trusting you in something very important so so for me, you know, a perfect day would be you know having a lunch or a dinner um and you know sealing that deal uh, There's nothing better than that uh, and then frankly, every day is always made up of the the boring stuff right, and I think that's important you know and the key with that is just balancing it out letting sort of the individuals who have to do that do that but also recognizing you need to step in and and lead so 30% of my day is doing stuff i don't really want to do but is important the days which are not great are when those that becomes 70 80% and then then that's then that makes the need for having periods of reflection really important because if you keep doing that then you have to think about okay something's not right in the business and Am I focused in the areas where I can add most value? My typical day has, I'm, I'm pushed in five to six different directions. Is that a hook? Um, <laughs> yeah, it can be eight, nine, ten. And, and I'm trying to manage that, you know, more towards the, the five or six. So, yeah, the day starts early and my day typically finishes, you know, six thirty-seven. Again, I, I try to make the point to the team we all have families we all have lives outside so it's important we give time to that so i think you know the wind down is also important i love that i have a similar kind of forgive my crude
0: turn of phrase not as eloquent as you Harry that shit shoveling ratio and I think always oh, 30 30 70 fine and I start to worry if it hits kind of 50 50 marker so I'm, I'm reassured that that seems to that seems to echo what about then longer term really interesting the way you talked about that calibration over a say three to five year time line in terms of the performances that are important for the business but just as a mm. founder mm. what kind of calibration do you make because it's inevitable that you'll think about where am I going to be in 10, 20 years' time, yeah. um, but at the same time, as you said, you're a details guy and people are going to ask you 50, 100 questions a day. Yeah. How, how do you marry those things up? And how important is it to, do you have to make again a similar? do you have to dedicate proportions of your day to both the immediate challenges and those longer-term ones? How, how does that make
1: sense in your head? It's a good question. I mean, I think having where the business is today, I mean, I think, first of all, there's really no ceiling to what we can do. You know, we, you know, the question I'm often asked is, is you know, how many families, how many clients? You know, surely it must stop at 20 families or 25. I'm not going to put ceilings like that on the business. I think what we need to keep doing, and that's what we have to be focused on, is improving and enhancing the service we provide to our existing families and then leaving capacity and room to grow. I think the growth is important. I think the diversity of families and the experience you get through through new clients and different experiences is is valid, is really actually very important to us because that makes us, I think, again, technically stronger. Um, I also think, you know, size over time does matter in this industry, right? It's, again, highly competitive. So, you know, we've kind of got to a level which, you know, makes us significant and and material in terms of what we can do but you know there's still there's still more to go and and so therefore having a sense that okay we having an aspiration that we want to double our business in the next three to five years that that's very much on my mind right so it's not something i drum the beat to every day but it's certainly i'm thinking again okay where are we in that longer term plan and let's make sure we're still not losing focus on that. And, you know, that's what I'm constantly doing. I think the, the catalyst around some of those thought processes around where the business is often led by the micro. And the micro is, OK, what's going on with our existing families? Where do they want our help? What does that mean for the business in terms of revenue and, and solutions? Do we need to invest here? Do we need to do less here? so it's that it's that confluence i think of of sort of the day to day and then the tr- strategic and and again creating time around that i think is is vital just on this point about inspiration you talk about the need to
0: innovate and to be ambitious but but measured in your approach where does that come from i imagine you're a voracious reader and i'm sure you're constantly talking and researching on the technical aspects of your craft your industry but do you find that it's important to have inspiration that comes from, were we talking about it, a, seeing a great piece of design or walking through a building or a neighbourhood yeah. you've not visited? What, what role do those things, which aren't, they're not tradecraft, they're just somebody in the world experiencing things. But do you find that you can get professional inspiration or indeed must, must one get professional mm. inspiration from, from those sources as well?
1: Yeah, I, so I think what is very important in this role, and I think, frankly, in all leadership roles, is to be curious. And I'm very curious. So I'm always, you know, I'm inspired by, you know, individuals, acts, people, organisations that absolutely fall outside what we do. And I think the two or three things that inspire me are sort of design and architecture. So I have a lot of friends in architecture and 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 the art world. And so that, for me, I think is something I can very quickly draw inspiration from and have access to, and, and I think that's very important. So I'm doing that a lot. I think the other one is the political world. For me, that's also something that, you know, interests me. And I was speaking to Ross just on the way here, but our world very much, you know, families, entrepreneurs, business, politics, again, those those worlds all come together and and again i think today we live in a time where you know there's a lot of political change there's a lot of uh, economic change geopolitical change And, and again i think that's an inspiration for us as we think about where we locate the business what our families how they move around the world all those things kind of come through and that's the beauty of our business that you know we can have access to that and influence around that and the final one is sport. You know, for me, that's another thing which I have incredible passion around. And and again, the great, particularly sort of in, in football and soccer, it's, it's a team sport and it's become more technical. So the great coaches in the world, you know, tend to be, you know, yes, they're inspirational figures, but actually they're highly technical and they're trying to work out how they can create an interesting, uh, successful team as opposed to, you know, star individuals. If you look at the great managers today, it's, it's much more about that. So again, I tend to get inspiration from things I'm passionate about. And, and all those, those three things for me today, very relevant to the business. And everyone is of their own style and nature. And it may not be absolutely necessary to everyone. But certainly for me, it is. And it also allows me to take a welcome break from the day to day. And I think that's very, very important that you kind of can step away and and, and have another view of the business, but through a fresh pair of eyes and and I think those things allow me to do that I love that and you started
0: this because you brought up football managers um maybe we, in fact it would probably be Jermaine to get ross in here and ask him about what kind of what kind of coach would you be that's always quite a fun game to play are you kind of one of these money ball coaches where the the data trumps you I sense maybe a bit a bit of both is there a, is there a, even a specific individual where you're like this guy or this gal embodies my approach to Management, or is it? Are you not as sort of literal as that when it comes to these? Your, I
1: don't know. You're sporting heroes, perhaps. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm a huge Jurgen Klopp fan, so I'm a massive Liverpool fan, and I think actually he's overestimated on the personality and underestimated on his tactical. I think the tactical is huge. I look more like Pep Guardiola, so I often get mistaken for him. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to say he's not a bad inspiration. I think he's hugely technical, and those individuals are inspirations. I think certainly where we're doing this and it's been interesting we're definitely more i'm not going to say it's the money ball but we're we're trying to create a culture and again back to my the way we hire we tend to hire young but individuals who have kind of proven themselves but early in their career and are looking to be part of something different and i think that's the way we do it we haven't yet made that big sort of Cristiano Ronaldo, Lino Messi type hire. And interestingly, in our industry, one thing I've seen is actually the, the big guys who supposedly the movers and shakers, they're the ones who have the biggest insecurity. Like getting those guys to move from where they are. And and they're, they, by the way, they're not always happy where they are, or at least that's what they say to us. But actually, when it comes to making a decision, they always err on the side of caution. And, and they're not as risk-taking and entrepreneurial. And so, therefore, that's why I think we've, by sort of necessity, but also intentionally, we, we wanted to create, you know, a, a firm where actually people grow and we can help shape them into this, you know, into some of the cultural aspects that we want. And and that's what we're doing. And I think, actually, if you think about sports, that's actually what Klopp's done. It's what Guardiola's done, um, team over any individual That was Harry
0: Hundle, the founder and managing partner of Hundle. You can learn more about the business. Head to Hundle.co. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back next week. Do look out in the meantime for Eureka on Fridays programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses like Hundle every month. If you'd like to contact the Entrepreneurs team, drop a note to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.